0: Hello and welcome back to The Hated and the Dead with Tom Lehman. As you will have seen from the title of today's podcast, this is a slightly unorthodox episode of the show. I will not be examining an evil dictator today, but instead the much less bloodthirsty character of Neil Kinnock. As I said in my short episode earlier in the week, I felt it would be unfair to lump a character such as Neil Kinnock in with the likes of Tyre Erdogan or Alexander Lukashenko. And so, In the rare event that I record podcasts about less extreme figures, they will bear the epithet the rather less horrible. So Neil Kinnock. Kinnock, or Lord Kinnock as he now is, is known primarily for serving as leader of the Labour Party between 1983 and 1992. Unlike some Prime Ministers such as Gordon Brown, who spent his entire time as Labour leader also as Prime Minister. Kinnock spent all nine years of his Labour leadership as Leader of the Opposition. Nobody in British politics has spent longer as Opposition Leader than Kinnock. Having said that, Kinnock did take the Labour Party from one of the weakest positions in its history after the disastrous 1983 general election, and over the course of the next two elections, reduced the Conservative majority in Parliament from 144 to just 21. The second election, though, in 1992, proved a terrible psychological defeat for Labour and for Kinnock personally, given most commentators had expected Labour to win it. Instead, John Major's Conservatives won more votes than any other party in history. Whilst Kinnock is not a hateable figure, he is controversial within Labour, with the left of the party deriding him as overly compromising with the right-wing conventional wisdom of the 1980s. Bringing the party too close to the centre ground, and in doing so, paving the way for the leadership of Tony Blair. It is perhaps fitting then that my guest for this episode is a Labour supporter and politician through and through. Peter Hain, now also a member of the House of Lords, served as Labour Member of Parliament for Neath in South Wales between 1991 and 2015, and also served as Secretary of State for Wales. And work and pensions secretary under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown. He was by Kinnock's side for much of his time as leader of the opposition, and his insights on that period are great to listen to. We discuss Kinnock's attempts to reform Labour during the 1980s, why Labour unexpectedly lost the 1992 election, and, given both Hayne and Kinnock's connections to Wales, the prospect for Welsh Labour in the years ahead. Ladies and gentlemen, it's time to introduce Neil Kinnock. Good morning, Peter. How are you? Morning, Tom. Oh. Fine, thank you. I've spoken to a couple of friends of mine, and I mentioned I was doing a podcast about Neil Kinnock. Um, they were surprised that Kinnock might be an interesting person to study in 2021. I have my reasons for thinking that he's still an interesting person to to think about. Um, You know Kinnock, I think, quite well. Why, in your eyes, is his career still worthy of examination?
1: Well, Neil Kinnock was one of the political giants of his era in frontline politics. Uh, He was the leader of the Labour Party between 1983 and 1992, And he was elected leader just after a terrible defeat in 1983 in which the party was relegated to its worst performance since the early 1930s by Margaret Thatcher. And that defeat was only matched by Jeremy Corbyn's in 2019. And why I think it's particularly interesting to look at Neil Kinnock is if you look at the Labour Party now, It is seeking to build under its leader, Keir Starmer, from a similarly low base. In fact, a lower base than was the case in 1983. Uh, Both terrible defeats, but 1983 was a a defeat not quite as damagingly bad and awful as was uh, uh, 2019. So... uh, When you look at Neil Kinnock's role in building the party to a point where, although he lost two elections, he was thought to have nearly won in 1992 by commentators and the political class, and then, of course, lost to John Major. He did make the Labour Party nearly electable again, and so he paved the way for the landslide victory that occurred under Tony Blair in 1997, followed by... 2001 and another victory in 2005, I don't think that would have been possible without Neil Kinnock's leadership from 1983 onwards.
0: If we look at Kinnock's early career, um, he was born in 1942 in Tredegar in South Wales. His Welsh background, of course, became very important to how he was treated and received in national politics and in the press. Because it set him apart from a, a very English-dominated politics in London. Um, how do you think his upbringing shaped his political philosophy? Oh, he was very much a product of Tredegar, the,
1: the home place of Niren Bevan, who invented the National Health Service, and of Welsh culture. He still is very Welsh, uh, having although having lived in London. For uh, the greater part of his life, actually, since he was elected an MP, Neil Kinnock is still steeped in his Welsh antris- ancestry and also in his in his whole being. When you talk to him, his manner, his uh, wit, his oratory—it is all very all very Welsh—and um, I think that was a that was a kind of magnet for. London English prejudice in the media, who were hostile to Labour at the time and to Neil Kinnock. Although what was interesting about his uh, pers- the perception of him through the media and the kind of opinion forming classes was that uh, he was a bit of a darling of theirs. Prior to becoming leader, he was on all the kind of... Uh, all the political programmes, Question Time, Newsnight, uh, all the programmes of all the television stations, and quite a, um, a seen as a, a great media performer. When he became leader, he wasn't seen in that way by the media. I think then he became in less less of a sort of television star and somebody who would. Um, or a radio star, and more of a kind of, they began to see him in a different way. The establishment began to see him as a potential prime minister, and a potential threat, therefore, to the conservative
0: dominance of the time under Margaret Thatcher. If we try and place ourselves in the context of the early 80s, Labour, as you mentioned, lost the general election to Margaret Thatcher's Conservatives in 1979. And it was steep at the time in a kind of internal uh, feud between moderate social democrats led by people like Dennis Healy and James Callaghan, on the one hand and on the other hand, a kind of much more identifiably socialist left wing led by people like Tony Benn and Michael Foote. Michael Foote, of course, became leader in 1980 and led Labour to this terrible defeat in 1983, as you mentioned. Um, Before he became leader in 1983, where was Neil Kinnock within that um, dichotomy? Neil came from the left of the party,
1: but he came to be more recognised as what was called the soft left. He was not the hard left associated in contemporary terms with, for example, Jeremy Corbyn. Then linked with Tony Ben, although the two had been uh, colleagues together at the left wing tribune rallies at party conferences, which were the main attraction in those days amongst all the fringe events of labor labor con- annual conferences um, but he he came from from the left uh, and was in, in one of the one of the kind of stars of the left, but the battle for the Labour Party's future in the early 1980s became quite polarized between the soft left and the hard left. I was Mm. a young activist at the time in a pressure group called the Labour Coordinating Committee, and in fact stood for Labour in Putney in 1983. And Neil Kinnock came to speak for me and had a rousing, um, packed meeting of around 500, uh, absolutely inspiring, enthusiastic meeting. But he had um, very clearly, by that point, uh, broken with the hard left, or the hard left had broken with him. There was quite a lot of sectarianism coming from the harder left towards others of us on the same side of the argument, but not as purist and as hard line, if, if you like. Uh, Neil Kinnock was more pragmatic. He wanted to get things done. And because he came from a working-class community, he was brought up up in a mining family, uh, in a mining community. Uh, And uh, and mines in his uh, formative years were still dominant in the South Wales economy, uh, both in terms of uh, their share of gross domestic product, but also the numbers employed in the mines. There was hardly a family in the Welsh Valleys, uh, one of which I represented as MP for Neath for nearly a quarter of a century. There was hardly a family at that time in the early 1980s that wasn't steeped in in mining. Uh, And uh, so Neil Kinnock was an authentic working class leader, and he was, as he memorably, memorably said in a wonderful speech during the 1983 general election campaign, he was the first Kinnock to go to university and uh, in, in, I think he said a phrase like, in the thousand years of Kinnick's. I yeah, in the, first yeah, the thousand to...
0: generations.
1: Yes, the thousand generation of Kinnick's, I was the first to um, to go to university. It was a very moving and um, captivating speech, and Neil Kinnock at his best as a wonderful orator. So, in short, he was on the soft left, but that did not mean, yep. mean he was unprincipled or anything like that. He was just much more determined to get into power rather than to bask in in
0: armchair purity. Sure. Um, He becomes leader in 1983. Probably the most significant moment of his early years as leader is the, I think, 1985 Labour conference. This is happening against the backdrop of the miners' strike. He gives a very impassioned speech denouncing the hard left. It's a very powerful speech. If you watch it today, it's it's on YouTube. Um, It puts Keir Starmer's speech from a few weeks ago... Uh, it makes it sound, you know, like a anodyne piece of fence mending by comparison. It would make almost any speech be,
1: seem yeah. anodyne by comparison. Yeah, yeah. It was a, it was an incredible speech. I remember being in the audience at the time in the Bournemouth Conference Centre in 1985.
0: I mean, I mean, those sorts of speeches are important, kind of um, symbolic moments for changing a party. But how does how did Kinnock attempt to get? down to the more sort of uh, bread-and-butter changes of the Labour Party to make it a more, as he saw it, electable force?
1: Well, he brought in a whole series of policy changes, and he also brought in Peter Mandelson to head his communications, uh, head communications for the party, and, and Peter gave it with his incredible professional acumen. Uh, and knowledge of presentation, gave the party a much more user-friendly, modern image, and Neil Kinnock was meanwhile giving it the substance to that. So, for example, the 1983 manifesto had been termed uh, the longest suicide note in history by a former um, Labour minister Gerald Kaufman, uh, and Neil quickly... Started to develop a manifesto that was much more in tune with potential Labour voters and didn't um, didn't put off the middle ground that Labour always has to win to form a government that uh, and and uh, which had eluded us spectacularly in in 1983. So he began doing that, but he also and the 1985 Bournemouth conference speech was a symbol of that. He took on. Militants who were a Trotskyist interest organization. By entrism, I mean that they were their own party inside the Labour Party with their own program, their own discipline, their own organization, uh, trying to take over the Labour Party as a a self-proclaimed Trotskyist organization. And he took on Militants. And they were very intolerant, uh, very aggressive about their politics, very intimidating uh, towards opponents. Um, I, I, for example, was on the receiving end of that and and Neil Kinnock certainly was and his most prominent followers. So, uh, on the one hand he was seeking to modernize the Labour Party, if you like. On the other hand, he was seeking to do so whilst being rooted in Labour's values of social justice and equal opportunities and respect for human rights. And that was very much in his DNA but he knew that, that, that the labor of 1983 uh, with an unelectable platform could not win in the future and he could never be prime minister. There is, there is one other thing about him sure. that is very much uh, common to me in that he was very prominent in the anti-apartheid struggle. Uh, and uh, I, my childhood was in South Africa. My parents were anti-apartheid activists in Pretoria and we were forced into exile. So, um, and I was very active in the British anti-apartheid movement and Neil Kinnock um, was one of those Labour MPs, uh, there were half a dozen very prominent, many other supporters along with Liberal MPs as well, but Neil Kinnock was one of the, the, the most stalwart, if you like, mm. uh, and so he, um, he had a, a following because of his principled stand against racism and, and apartheid in particular.
0: Kinnock um, leads the party into the 87 general election. Um, Labour performs better in that election than it did in 1983. I think it gained about 20 seats, which still left the Tories with a majority of about 100. I think it's been said that Kinnock won the campaign but lost the vote. Um, but if to fast forward a couple of years after that, Labour's actually ahead in the polls by the end of the 80s. Margaret Thatcher had become... increasingly unpopular due to the poll tax. Her party viewed her with suspicion because of her uh, attitude towards Europe. She was deposed by her own party in 1990, um, and John Major became prime minister. Do you think that Margaret Thatcher would have been an easier opponent for Neil Kinnock to face in the uh, forthcoming election in 1992 than John Major?
1: that 's very hard to to say, I think she would have in some ways, because um, she was so identified with the decimation of manufacturing mm. the deindustrialization of Britain, uh, quintessentially mining w- w- where she basically murdered mining communities, politically murdered them, and stuck them all all on what was the, on, on what we now know as disability allowance rather than um, Uh, on the unemployment queues, because that was her way of of keeping the official unemployment total down. And what that did is, for communities steeped in in work, and particularly in mining, it stopped them having any kind of... uh, uh, The whole DNA of those communities was ripped out. If she had said, look, mining, the heyday of mining is over, coal mining is over and I'm going to invest in those communities and invest in new skills and really pour billions into those communities, because of course they had powered the British economy for generations, Uh, then I think her reputation might have been different. But she didn't do that. Neil Kinnock taking her on in the 1992 election, or whenever it would have been, I think she would have been an easier opponent for him. But she was a formidable politician, Margaret Thatcher, and, and had an ability to, to mobilize her base um, uh, in a way that John Major didn't. Though John Major won um, not that big a parliamentary majority, in fact wafer thin. So Neil hmm. Kinner came very close to winning. But in popular votes, I think it's right to say that he, he polled up until that point the, the biggest conservative vote ever. Um, I
0: think still, actually, I think he he actually won more, yeah. more votes uh, than than Boris Johnson did last time. Um, let's talk about the '92 election as it actually happened, rather than the the sort of counterfactual where Thatcher actually was still prime minister. Major was a more was a kind of softer, more avuncular character in lots of ways. Uh, I think '92 was the first election where you were a sitting MP. Peter, you won a by-election for Nice right. in 1991. Yeah. Um, in the run-up to the 92 election, Labour has been leading the polls. It holds this rally in Sheffield, which yeah. looks kind of like a, an American party convention made for TV. And Kinnock gives this quite memorable but bizarre speech where he shouts, we're all right, we're all right, we're all right, almost like he's Bob Geldof. At the start of the speech, this has kind of come to signify what happened next. Labour lose the election um, in spite of everything that's been going on during the 1980s. Why do you think Labour lost in 1992? Was it a problem with the Labour Party uh, and their continuing reputation for economic mismanagement? Was it a problem with or was it a problem with uh, the leader, with Neil Kinnock, uh, that people just didn't see him? As a prime minister,
1: I think it was a bit of both. Um, he suffered from a lot of London prejudice against uh, uh, against being Welsh, as we've as we discussed. But he at that Sheffield rally, he also um, he didn't look like a statesman, and he will say that himself now. He, there was a kind of rah rah sort yeah. of side to it all as if he was a sort of master of ceremonies, whipping the crowd up before a rock concert. Um, And uh, that didn't look prime ministerial. But I don't think, I think the bigger picture was Labour wasn't yet trusted on the economy. And I remember, we went into that election, and I I woke up on polling day to begin uh, from 7 o'clock driving around all the polling stations in my um, constituency of Neath, and it's quite widely spread with lots of former pit villages in valleys. And so, you know, you had to keep going the whole day. And I remember by 10 o'clock, I was listening to the BBC uh, radio news in my car, and it said the turnout in Sussex has been very high. And I thought, "Uh uh-uh, that doesn't sound very promising for us. And I I began to get a feeling that maybe the result was not going to be what um, the polls had predicted, what the pundits were anticipating and the whole of the political class and the media was geared up to. Um, So I don't think we were trusted. John Major and his then party chair, uh, Chris Patton, now Lord Patton, and Sir John Major, of course, uh, fought a pretty um, ruthless campaign against Neil Kinner. Very, very ruthless. And uh, uh, it was very effective though. It, It basically stirred up fear Against Labour and against Neil, uh, and I think it did turn pretty reluctant Conservatives out to vote, including in Sussex, as I as I had <laughs> heard at 10 a.m. in the morning, in numbers that probably they were not intending to to uh, to do um, until that point. So I think there was a late swing to the Tories, and it was in the end because we simply were not trusted. On the, on the economy, yes, um, because there were still memories of the winter of discontent in 1978, 1979. That, of course, was when there was, you know, a rubbish, uh, a binmen strike, and there was rubbish and rotting uh, bags of food and stench yes. all over the streets of of of, of Britain. Uh, and in urban areas, it was pretty unbearable. Uh, as well as public service strikes over higher pay. And the trade unions at that time that I was a trade union, a national officer, you know, cost a lot of cost labor, a lot of credibility, economic credibility.
0: I mean, I mean, this trope of economic mismanagement is something that the Tories still use to to kind of berate the Labour Party with now, especially after the 2008 financial crisis. Completely, I, uh, that in my erroneous, erroneously, yeah, in, erroneous. incorrectly. Yeah. But I, I've I've thought um, a few times when I've read about the ninety two election that obviously the Tories became very unpopular because of interest rate rises. The un, unemployment rate rose very quickly in the early nineteen nineties. Do you ever think that it was probably better that Labour didn't win the ninety two election because it it would have been so easy for the press to say. Well, we told you so. Uh, Labour were always uh, terrible at handling the economy. And now look at this.
1: Well, I'm a Labour politician, Tom. I don't think it's ever a good idea for Labour to use
0: to lose. (laughs) But it must have crossed your mind, at least.
1: Well, people did say that at the time. Um, And uh, maybe, you know, to make some kind of theoretical political point, maybe that that was the case. But uh, this this charge of economic mismanagement, um, you know, in the nineteen seventies, the Labor government did make mistakes, but we were in the in the grip of a, I think a quadrupling of oil prices, which resulted hmm. in power cuts under Ted uh, under Edward Heath and uh, roaring inflation up into the mid twenties. Um, and therefore massive pressure on wages through a very strong trade union movement at the time in the 1970s. By comparison, now it's a pale shadow of, of the strength that it had then, with large workplaces especially. And um, so I think Labour suffered from that period in, in the late 1970s, and trade union militancy also uh, left a big scar. But if you look at what then happened, as you're implying, in the 1990s, is actually the Conservatives um, were the ones who had a terrible record of economic management. And that's partly why they they were run out of office in a massive landslide. There was also a lot of of Tory sleaze at the time. Um, But I think the major reason was the economic. It's always, uh, as a, a, a Bill Clinton... Um, Guru said, uh, "It's it's the econom It's the economy, stupid." Um, and uh, elections are, by and large, fought on the economy, not exclusively, but on the economy. And by comparison, when the global credit crunch happened, when the global financial crisis hit uh, in two thousand and eight, but already there were signs of it at the end of two thousand and seven. I mean, that started from. More, subprime mortgages to poor people in America—sure, how sure. that could be laid at the door of of the Labour government—you know, uh, objectively
0: is beyond any comprehension. But it was, sure.
1: and it was very—I agree. Yeah, made. yeah,
0: I, I agree. But it, it, it—I I do think if I if I'd have been there at the time in in the early nineties and I'd have been in in say your position, I, a bit of me at least would have thought, "I'm glad I don't have to deal with that." But in any case, I, I just have a couple. Of other questions I want to ask you, uh, Peter. I know you've got to go soon. Um, after Kinnock resigned in 1992, there's, there's a short period where his ally John Smith led the Labour Party. Um, he unfortunately died in 1994. and within into the Blair years, Blair, of course, moved labor even closer to the center ground on economic issues, and some would argue to the center right. How comfortable was Neil Kinnock with Blair's leadership of the party? Well, he wanted a winner, and he wished he'd
1: been a winner, and Tony Blair was certainly that, the most successful prime minister in the party's history. Um, but, but Neil was always much more rooted in the, the values of the Labour movement, of the Labour Party and the trade unions and in socialist history than Tony Blair ever was or could be. Um, Tony Blair is an exceptional leader, and when you see him perform uh, on the media now, you think, "Well, this is this was a a, a a very special talent," and that is the case. But there were times when, like, and in that sense, he reflected my own um, views. When Neil Kinnock, on the one hand, was admiring of this winning brand of uh, Blairism, on the other hand, concerned that. That um, you know how rooted was it in in Labour's values, and the neglect of our traditional base. Um, but he he never expressed that publicly. But that would that I'm sure would would be his view. And I hope he doesn't take umbrage at me suggesting it it was. He was loyal, uh, and and supportive. And I think Neil Kinnock deserves a much bigger footprint in Labour history than perhaps in generations to come he will be given Uh, because I think he was absolutely indispensable to making Labour a winner again and when you look at what needs to be done in the Labour Party now, not in some kind of action replay of the 1980s under Neil Kinnock or the early 90s but in terms of wrenching your way back, winching your way back from an absolutely cataclysmic defeat under Jeremy Corbyn in December 2019 to where we can challenge for victory again as a Labour government. Uh, I think Neil Kinnock will be seen as a as a model uh, for Labour leaders um, including Keir Starmer to to study and to learn from, not simply to transplant into modern conditions because that's never possible in the world of politics with social media and, and the rest of it is very, very different. I mean, we didn't have mobile phones in 1983. We didn't have the internet. Uh, we didn't have, um, uh, when Neil Kinnock became leader, we didn't have, uh, you know, let alone social media. It was a completely different world. There were about three television channels <laughs> that everybody watched. The evening news was watched by you know, more than half the population on the BBC or, or ITV. It was a very different political culture.
0: Absolutely. Just one more thing before you uh, before you go, Peter. You represented a Welsh constituency in Parliament. Um, so did Neil Kinnock. At the last election, support for Labour in the kind of Welsh heartlands, in the valleys, tailed off, not to the point where it lost seats in the valleys like it did in, in northern England, but the Labour majority in your old constituency, for example, decreased from 12,000 to about 5,000 in two years. Are you worried that Welsh Labour will see a similar demise to those suffered by Labour in the north of England, or indeed Scottish Labour, which is now really a bit of a sideshow in Scottish politics? I don't think so, but there are big challenges for Welsh Labour.
1: If you look at the Welsh Parliament elections, the Senate elections in May of 2021, uh, you see a very good performance by Labour. Mm. Uh, an extraordinarily good performance. which The best um, ever, I think, right? Uh, best ever in number of seats. I'm not sure yeah. that's true in, in percentage votes, but yeah. um, very, very good performance. So Labour is still very strong in Wales, and I think it's partly because we got a terrible shock in 1999 where we lost a lot of seats in the first Welsh uh, Assembly legislative assembly elections first ever ones uh in in heartlands like the Rhondda and um Kefili, uh and uh, blina gwent and so on in these these traditional so-called safe labor seats but i think that um the same processes of deindustrialisation. Uh, and decline in the old Welsh Labour heartlands in the valleys is what has occurred in the northeast of England and elsewhere in the north of England, um, occurred in Scotland. So unless Welsh Labour continues to reinvent ourselves, then we will face similar threats. I'll just make one other observation in this respect. When I was first elected MP for NEATH in 1991, I had um, been active in the constituency since my selection nine months uh, previously. And I hadn't expected a by-election. Nobody had when my predecessor, Donald Coleman, tragically and suddenly died. Um, but I had treated it as a marginal seat, rather like I, I campaigned in Putney, which was a marginal seat in the 1983 and 1987 elections at the height <coughs> of Thatcherism and lost both. And um, at that time, it was very easy as, for me as an outsider to come into the constituency by going to local rugby clubs on a Saturday night uh, and they'd be full or miners' welfare clubs the same. There were still strong communities. Mining had declined, heavy industry had declined um, and was going to that, that trend would accelerate during my period as an MP. But if you fast forward to now, if you tried to do... Um, what I did is, is you know, went to every local club on a, on a weekend to spoke to trade union meetings in workplaces and so on and tried to get into the community in that way, you simply wouldn't be able to do it. Because in my local village where I, I lived for 14 years before moving down the Neath Valley of Resolven, I'd go in on a Saturday night. The lounge bar of the club would be absolutely packed. I mean, heaving. With men in a jacket and tie and women in their best frocks coming out after dinner at about nine o'clock at night to spend the rest of the evening in the bar, it was packed and all the kind of key villages were there. And you could replicate that across yeah. the twenty odd villages in, in the area. Now the lounge bar's dead on a Saturday night. There are half a dozen youngsters playing snooker or pool in the in the other bar. Um, uh, and unless there's a function on basically that whole fabric of large workplaces trade unions links through um, working people's clubs into the communities that organic link that bound the Labour Party to its local voters in those areas and this was true of the Durham coal fields and it was true of Uh, Scotland and Northern England as well, not simply around coal but other large workplaces. That's just withered and in many cases died completely. Labour in Scotland didn't manage to reinvent itself sufficiently uh, robustly and nor in the north of England to cope with that basic demographic and um, economic shift. And that will be a continuing challenge for, for Labour in Wales, but so far, so good, um, partly because after 1999, and I was played, in, uh, played a role in all of this um, uh, as, 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 as one of the prominent figures in Welsh Labour, and then of course Secretary of State for Wales under Tony Blair and Gordon Brown, um, we rebranded and, and we took, it was such a setback in 1999 that Scotland didn't Experience Scottish Labour didn't experience that we took stock, and in a way reinvented ourselves as distinctly Welsh. And by by um, May of two thousand and twenty-one, we had effectively commanded the patriotic high ground. Yes, nationalists were not able to um, to occupy on their own because there's a difference between patriotism and nationalism, in my view, a yes. massive yeah. difference. Um, and we became the party associated with patriotism, but not separatism uh, of, of the nationalist Plaid Cymru variety. And maintaining that position is going to be important. But equally, you know, the Tories um, took a lot of seats off, uh, off Welsh Labour in 2019, as they had uh, in previous elections, remember they were wiped out in, 20, in, in 1997. There were no Welsh Conservative MPs anywhere in, in Wales. Uh, well, by definition, they were, there were no Conservatives anywhere in Wales. So the, the Tories are still the main threat to Labour, rather than Plaid Cymru. But Plied, people can vote anti-Conservative and pro-Plaid, but not for Labour. While still thinking they are against the Conservatives, but the Conservatives have done a, you know, a very creditable job in building back their support.
0: Well, my uh, my grandmother is a is a is an old constituent of yours. She lives in one of those uh, villages in the the Neath Valley, and I don't think you're going to be losing her vote anytime soon. She's still uh, <laughs> well, very good brilliant. for your grandmother, Tom. Excellent
1: for your <laughs> grandmother. Give her my give her my regards. Which which village is it, by the way?
0: uh she lives in Kung Grach, so not oh, very Kung far Rock, from yes yes yeah, yeah yes
1: indeed the next the next village up the valley from resolve
0: yeah, yeah. it's a it's a fantastic know, part well. of the world um thank you very much peter it's been a really good conversation um where can people uh find your your work you're obviously a member of the House of Lords now, but you've also written a number of books where can people find those well my my um South African memoir. A Pretoria
1: Boy, South Africa's Public Enemy, number one, has just been published by Icon Books in, in Britain, as it was before that in South Africa. So that's available on all book outlets online or, um, or in bookshops. Um, I'm a big fan of local bookshops. So, uh, yep, you can, you can get it there, or my biography of Nelson Mandela, or my book on the future of Labour called Back to the Future of Socialism, which is a kind of updated Tony Crossland book. Uh, I have a website where those are all um, peterhane.org.uk, also uh, also advertised as well.
0: Fantastic. Thank you very much, Peter. Pleasure. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Hated and the Dead. If you've enjoyed this podcast, follow it on Spotify or Apple Podcasts to get updates whenever new episodes are released. If you're just on that last stretch of your commute to or from work, or have a spare two minutes, please leave a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. It's the best way to help the podcast grow.